Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Welcome to week number three in the series called The Promise, Our Savior Has Come, where each week during Advent, and again, it's hard to believe this is already week number three in Advent, we look at the fulfillment of God's promise of the Messiah through the eyes of the very first people to see that promise fulfilled. And so in week number one, it was Simeon highlighting the theme of hope. Last week, it was the shepherds highlighting the theme of peace. And today, a very unique, interesting, special story about a man named Zachariah highlighting the theme of joy. And I was just talking to Ben yesterday, and I said, this story about Zachariah, it rightfully is in the shadow of the birth narrative in Luke chapter 2, because it's not the main story, but it's a really good story. And uh, I hope you'll grow to appreciate the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth today in Luke chapter 1. The, the fact that joy is so important in the book of Luke is no surprise in our story today, because joy or rejoicing is a key theme in Luke's gospel, being mentioned as many as 19 times. 19 times the theme of joy or rejoicing is emphasized by Luke. Now, you'll remember that Luke was a medical doctor and a historian, and he was writing an orderly account for a particular individual about the Jesus story. The, the story, story was being written for a friend named Theophilus. And this is purely speculation on my part, but perhaps just perhaps, Luke talked so much about joy because it was something that Theophilus needed to hear. Is it possible, and I think it is, that Theophilus maybe was discouraged, maybe he was in a season of darkness, he needed to be reminded of, or maybe told for the very first time, the joy that is possible in knowing Jesus, Jesus Christ. And so maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you find yourself like Theophilus in a discouraged state and needing to hear of the joy that is possible in Jesus. And so my prayer for this message is that there will be somewhat of a fresh renewal of joy in your heart and life because of what is contained in the story. The kind of joy that we mentioned last week where the angel said to the shepherds in Luke 2.10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news of great joy for shepherds. Good news of great joy for Theophilus. Good news of great joy for us right here in 2021. So let's dive into Zechariah's story. It begins in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. So I'll give you a minute just to turn there if you would like. Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. And we're going to read that very first phrase and we're going to stop. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, those few words tell us a lot, actually, about the setting for today's text. In the days of Herod, which were not joyful days in the life of Israel. It was, in fact, quite dark. The people had not heard a prophetic word from the Lord in 400 years. 
God seemed so distant. God seemed so silent. And they were being ruled by a tyrannical ruler named Herod. You'll remember as part of the Christmas story, what happened after Jesus was born, it was this Herod who had all the baby boys in the land put to death because of his paranoia, because he was afraid that his throne was going to be overtaken. And such were the days of Herod, king of Judah. Very dark, very discouraging. And and that's important for us to note because it does remind us that just as God had not forgotten Israel, he's not forgotten us. Just as God had not forgotten Israel, he has not forgotten us. Joy will come. And so you may feel like you're in your own personal days of Herod, like your life is in such turmoil, and, and God may even seem silent. You're struggling, straining to hear his voice, but it seems as if he's absent. But be assured that God is present that he is at work, and joy is coming, just as it was to the household of Zechariah and the nation of Israel. And so let's go to that second half of verse 5. There was a, a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, it, it's be hard to find more complimentary language to use than that, right? Righteous and blameless. Anybody fall into that category this morning? And humble, right? Um, in those days of darkness, Zechariah and Elizabeth were bright, shining lights, faithfully serving God and others, seeking holiness of heart and life, People like that who are so tight with God, they don't have any problems, right? They just bask in prosperity and good fortune. The wind is always at their backs. Well, you know better than that. For we read in verse 7 about these righteous and blameless folks. They had no child, it says in verse 7, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, infertility is a big deal in any age, in any culture, and it brings with it a unique pain. But it was especially true in Zechariah's day where the belief was that if you were not blessed with children, that there was some kind of sin in your life, and God's judgment was upon you. And so there's this, in addition to the pain of not being able to have children, there was this social stigma, religious stigma, spiritual stigma attached to it as well. A stigma that righteous and blameless Zachariah and Elizabeth had to bear. For decades, they had prayed for a child and had not received what they longed for. I think there's a teachable moment for us here. The situation with Zachariah and Elizabeth reminds us that God's people are not immune from real-life trouble and sorrow. God's people are not immune from real-life trouble and and sorrow. And again, one of the hardest things I think, and I'm sure Matt can attest to this, is when you stand up here on a Sunday morning and you just look out at the sea of faces and you are overwhelmed by the real life trouble and sorrow that a congregation represents. Even the most faithful people like Zachariah and Elizabeth, those described as righteous before God and walking blamelessly, they knew their share of trouble and sorrow. We touched on the words of Jesus last week in John 16, 33, where he just says so honestly, church, in this world, you will have tribulation, but 
take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus is saying this, in this world you will have tribulation, who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples, those closest to him, those who are following right along with him so closely. And he's telling them, he says, hey, gang, buckle up because life's going to be hard. You're going to go through intense times of trouble, but you go through these times of trouble with this promise that I'm going to be with you and I overcome. That name Emmanuel, we sang it in the commons this morning. Um, I don't know if you sang it here today, but it's one a name we sing, we read about, we study. Emmanuel means God with us, that no matter what we face, God will be with us. He will see us through. And I hope that those are words of encouragement that some of you need to hear today. In the midst of your trouble, your tribulation, in the midst of your sickness, in the midst of your loss, in the midst of the uncertainty of the future, you're not alone. God is with you as he was with Zechariah and Elizabeth. So we pick up Zechariah's story in verse 8. It says, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty. Now, let's stop there for a second because I think there's another important teachable moment, something really significant that we could miss if we're in too much of a hurry. What do you do when you're suffering, when you're going through trouble and sorrow? You could throw a pity party. You could isolate yourself. You could give up. You could go into a shell of discouragement. We've probably, all of us, have had seasons of that where we've done that. Or you could be like Zechariah. For you see, Zechariah continued to serve God and others even in the midst of his trouble and sorrow. Zechariah continued to serve God faithfully and others as well, even in the midst of his trouble and sorrow. And we are to do the same, even in the midst of our trouble. Zechariah didn't give up. He showed up. He showed up. And guess what? In the midst of Zechariah's faithful service, in the midst of Zechariah's showing up, we're going to see in just a moment, God showed up. God showed up. And look at verse 9. It says, This was according to the custom of the priesthood. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, this was the equivalent of winning the priestly lottery. Seriously, mega millions or whatever it's called these days, all right? Um, And let me explain why. Every descendant of Old Testament Aaron, and by this time there were many, many of those, was automatically a priest. And so, meaning that they had far more priests than they needed. All of these priests, all of these descendants of Aaron were divided into sections that were assigned a certain week of the year to serve at the temple. Only that week for that section. And when it was time for your section to serve, lots were cast to figure out which one priest would get to burn incense in the holy place. William Barclay says of this practice, he says, it was quite possible that many a great priest would never have the privilege of burning incense all his life. But if the lot did fall on any priest that day, was the greatest in all his life, the day he longed for and dreamed of. On this day, the lot fell on Zechariah, and he would be thrilled to the core of his being. So you can see what I mean by winning the lottery. The lot fell to Zechariah. 
But as we know, this is not by accident. This is not by coincidence. We don't believe in such things. This was divine providence. God had a purpose and a plan. Even in the dark days of King Herod, even in the midst of the turmoil and suffering of Zechariah and Elizabeth, God is at work. And we see the beginning of that plan being unveiled in verse 10. It says that the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, how many of you were here for our study of the tabernacle? All right, And you remember in studying the tabernacle the significance of the altar of incense. Every morning and evening, a priest would go into the holy place. He would burn incense on this altar as a symbol of the prayers of the people rising to God as a sweet-smelling aroma, which again reminds us of just how God views our prayers, right? To Him, it's as a sweet-smelling aroma. So, Zechariah wins the priestly lottery. He goes into the holy place to pray. And then in the courtyard, the people join in prayer with him. And then in verse 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled, rightfully so, when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, I can't help but wonder, as Zechariah is in the holy place, burning the incense on the altar, and the angel shows up. He's probably like, is this what normally happens? You know, because he's never, he's never been there before. He's never done this before. Here's the angel. It's like, oh, I guess the angel's part of the normal thing that happens. Um, but the fact of the matter is that's not what normally happened. This was a special occurrence. God had orchestrated this divine appointment for Zechariah and the angel at the altar of incense. And predictably, Zechariah's response is one of, terror. Remember uh, a year ago, we did an Advent series on angels, and we talked about the nature of angels, how glorious and powerful and majestic that they are, far beyond anything that we can imagine in our, human, yes, in our humanness. And yet, we are told in Hebrews 1.14 about angels, it says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, which is us? So these glorious, majestic, powerful beings are actually God's agents of ministry to us, which is so remarkable to think about and something we definitely take for granted. Now, we're not in the business of seeking angels or worshiping angels or even talking to angels. We seek God. We pray to God. But God, often in response to our prayers, will mobilize angels on our behalf in ways that we don't see, often don't even know about. And it'll be so interesting someday, maybe in heaven, for him to pull back the curtain just a little bit, maybe to replay the tape and say, did you even know that this was going on? We're like, no, no idea, no idea. Well, the angel, in response to Zechariah's fear, he gives that all-familiar greeting in verse 13. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, what a day Zechariah is having, right? First, he wins the priestly lottery, he gets to have the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to serve in the temple at the altar of incense. He then meets an angel who then tells him that his wife is going to have a baby, his very, very old wife, in response to the prayer that they've been praying for decades, quite a day indeed. 
And here I just want to highlight that first phrase in that second half of verse 13. The angel said to Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. For your prayer has been heard. It was true for Zechariah, and church, it is true for you as well. God hears your prayer. He knows your situation. And though he may seem silent, he may seem absent, he may seem inactive, the truth is that that is not the truth. I think of um, God's words communicated through Stephen in the book of Acts about when the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt. The Lord said this, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And so brothers and sisters, know for absolute certain today as we study Zechariah and Elizabeth and their situation and their story, just as God heard Zechariah and Elizabeth, just as he saw the Israelites and heard their groaning, he sees and hears you. He is present, he will act, and ultimately there will come joy. And as the angel said to Zechariah in verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now let me just qualify for a second here and just say, it was not a guarantee that because Zechariah and Elizabeth prayed for a child that they would get a child. At times, God's answer to our prayers are not the way we would answer them. And I will not understand this side of heaven always why it works the way it does. I do know my Bible is true. God's ways are higher than my ways. God knows better than I do. And God ultimately knows what is good. But this I do know, regardless of how circumstances play out here on earth, there is the promise of ab- and absolute certainty that we will all come to joy. Amen? Amen. Now the question is, what is it about this baby? Why is it that the angel would say, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth? What's up with this baby? Why would the baby born to Zachariah and Elizabeth bring joy to many? Number one, Because this baby would be the fulfillment of the prophecy given 700. Say 700. 700. It's a mind-boggling number. 700 years earlier in the book of Isaiah, it was prophesied that this baby would come. 700 years. Which again reminds us that often between the promise and the fulfillment can take a long time, and it's hard to wait, isn't it? Yet God was active, he was present, and he was at work on behalf of his people. So joy, because the 700 years of waiting for this promise to be fulfilled is going to come to an end. Number two, this baby would prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah. All those Old Testament prophecies, the the pictures, the the promises about Messiah, they're about to come true as indicated by the fact that this first baby was going to come and prepare the way. And so the angel goes on to tell Zechariah what the son would be like. Verse 15, angel says, "For, for he will be great before the Lord. 
And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It is indeed a special son, is it not? And let me just go off script here for a minute because I think there's an important point here that wasn't part of what I was originally going to say. However, this dude, John the Baptist, right? This baby that's going to precede Jesus. Um, kind of a freak, right? Very different. But rather than focusing on the, you know, the, the, the clothing and the eating of locusts and all the crazy stuff, the important thing to note here is that he is a child set apart. To be holy literally means to be set apart apart. John the Baptist was set apart. Church, we are to be set apart. We are to be different. And I think we work way too hard at times trying to be normal, trying to fit in, Try, and thinking that, well, and the more that we can normalize even the church to the culture, um, the more the culture will resonate with the church. It actually, I think, works the opposite. The more that we try to resonate with the culture, the more the culture says, you're not any different than we are. you got nothing to offer. I think there's a, there's a call here for us to recover what it means to be holy, to be sacred, to be set apart. It's okay. It's more than okay. It is God's command for us to be different. To be different than the world. To what degree could you look at your life and say, you know what? Without being legalistic, this isn't about rules and legalism, but it is about living a life as unto the Lord in all things, which inevitably is going to be a different kind of life than the world. All right. Um... Put yourself in Zachariah's sandals for just a moment. He's got a job to do in the temple, right? What's the job he's supposed to be doing? He's supposed to be praying at the altar of incense, interceding on behalf of the Jews, and now you're a little distracted, are you not? Um, Not only are you going to have a baby, but now the angel says this baby is going to play a hugely significant role in God's redemptive plan. And so here's another teachable moment for us. Um, Zachariah and Elizabeth prayed for a child, but God answered by giving them a prophet. Zachariah and Elizabeth prayed for a child, but God answered by giving them a prophet, which I think is an indicator that so often God's provision was much bigger than their vision. God's provision was much bigger than their vision. Maybe true of us as well. So often we pray small prayers to a seemingly small God, not really expecting an answer. I think of the story of Peter when he was in prison, right? People are praying for his release, and he, he gets released. God answers their prayer miraculously, and Peter comes and knocks on the door, says, I'm here. And they're like, no, you're not here. God couldn't have done that, even though we were praying that he would do it. God couldn't have done that. And I just think that's such a snapshot of my prayer life so many times that yeah, I go through the motions, I pray, do I really believe 
Do I really believe that God is as big as he says he is and can do what he says that he could do? The story of Zachariah and Elizabeth, I believe, challenges us to pray big prayers to a big God, thoroughly expecting an answer, just as it says in Ephesians 3.20. Now, to him who was able to do a little bit more, right? Far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Well, how, how does Zechariah respond to this news from the angel? Surely, in light of all that he's experienced on this day, he's going to be full of faith, right? Verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And this is another instance where I'm so glad that people in the Bible are re- regular people right? They're regular people. They respond the way that I would respond. They don't always get it right. They give me hope, right? And God did not give up on Zechariah and his lapse of belief, his unbelief. This is a prime example of, I do believe, but help my unbelief. But let's be clear, as we're going to see in just a moment, while God was patient with Zechariah's unbelief, he wasn't pleased with it. And so we see in verse 19, it says, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now please note that this wasn't God being mean. This was God being a loving parent. This was not God being mean. This was God being a loving parent. He's disciplining his son, Zechariah, for his own good so that Zechariah would always remember that God is who he says he is and will do what he says that he will do, and he is fully worthy of Zechariah's complete trust. As it says in Hebrews 12, 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. Some of you sitting here today may find yourself in the midst of God's discipline. And deep down, you know it. There's some area of rebellion in your life, of unconfessed sin. There's an area in your life where you're like, God, you're not allowed to touch that. And God, because he loves you, brings discipline into your life in many different forms. Let me just say this. If you are presently experiencing God's discipline, number one, thank him. Thank him. Thank God for his loving correction. Because it is, in fact, an affirmation of your sonship and his great love for you. Um, as, As any athlete will know, if you've played a team sport or any sport and you've had a coach The minute to get concerned is when that coach isn't hard on you, right? Because that shows that the coach doesn't really care or the coach doesn't really see potential in you. As long as the coach is coaching you hard, is, is really putting you through the ringer, you know that that coach cares and that that coach sees potential in you. And so it is with God and his discipline. Thank God for his loving correction because that means he is with you and working for your sanctification. And then number two, repent. Repent of whatever has caused the need for correction because as we all can attest, we've all experienced God's discipline. It's no fun. 
It's painful. And sometimes we experience far more pain in our lives than is necessary because of our hardness of heart. Maybe hardness of head. And the truth of the matter is that the pain could quickly come to an end if we would but learn the lesson that God is trying to teach us. If we would repent. And so this morning, I just want to admonish you, those of you who find yourselves in a season of God's discipline, thank Him for it. And then number two, repent of whatever has caused the need for correction. We pick up Zachariah's story in verse 21. The people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. He must have been in there longer than usual in verse 22. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And how frustrating that must have been for Zechariah, right? All that he has seen, all that he's experienced, he can't talk about it. All he wants to do is say, honey, I'm home, and go into graphic detail about everything that he has experienced, but he can't speak. Thus, the discipline. Hand gestures and writing would have to be used instead, all part of, again, God's loving correction. And then we read in verse 24, sure enough, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now, if we could talk to Elizabeth, how exciting that would be. I believe that her testimony would include two key things, two principles in her response. Number one, nothing is too difficult for our God. Not even an old man and an old woman having a baby. Not even her very own Zachariah. Her Zachariah winning the priestly lottery and getting to serve in the altar of incense and even being visited by an angel. Nothing is too difficult for our God. Number two, I believe she would say, God is always, always, always true to his word. Even the word given 700 years ago through the prophet Isaiah that spoke of the special son that would be born as the forerunner of Jesus the Messiah. Um, you, you thought Zachariah and Elizabeth had been waiting a long time for this baby. 700 years is even so much longer. And so, church, let us this morning be encouraged through Elizabeth's response and the truth that it contains. Now, our story, we're going to have to skip ahead a whole bunch of verses, and we'll talk more about those verses next week when we talk about Mary, but we're going to verse 57 right now. The baby's been promised, conception has taken place, and now in verse 57 of Luke 1, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. That's the, the tradition. But verse 60, but the mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called, because remember, he still can't speak. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, 
and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. His name will be John. His name will be John, which is a very significant name, with, rich with meaning. It means Jehovah's gift, and God is gracious. Jehovah's gift, and God is gracious, which clearly would have been the testimony of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And isn't it interesting? Every time, John, John, they are reminded, are they not, that God is gracious. This is Jehovah's gift. And all Israel with them. For this child would become, as we know, an individual that we call John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. We'll talk about that more next week. The forerunner of our Lord, charged with, and here's a key word that we're going to land on in ending the sermon today. He's charged with preparing the way for the ministry of the Messiah. Preparation. He's charged with preparing the way for the Messiah. And so let's talk a few minutes now about application from this story, the how should we then live portion. A few key points that I want to conclude with today. Number one, as we know, and as we talked about, isn't it just like God that he would impose upon me to talk about joy two times in like a month, right? As you know me. Um, But number one, joy is found in Jesus. It sounds so cliche. It sounds so trite. But it's true. If you want to know joy, you must know Jesus. Because without knowing Jesus, you will be left with your guilt and your shame and the burden of your sin and the question of your purpose and all of these huge life questions that bear upon us and weigh us down until you know Jesus and you know forgiveness and you know what it is to know him personally and to have his Holy Spirit live within you, you will never experience true joy. You may get a glimpse every once in a while of circumstantial happiness, but it will be fleeting. It is only by knowing Jesus that we know joy. Back to verse 10 of Luke 2 again. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So joy is found in Jesus. Next, and here's that preparation word I was talking about. Joy requires preparation. Joy requires preparation. In our story, John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, was charged with preparing the way for Jesus, preparing the way for the one who would bring the great joy. Preparation is also necessary for us when it comes to joy. And it comes in two forms. Number one, there's inner preparation that is necessary. Let me talk about that for a moment. The very message of John the Baptist and preparing the way for Jesus was, as it says in Matthew 3, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We mentioned repentance earlier. To repent means to turn away from sin and to turn to God. It is not just being sorry for it. As a pastor, I meet many people who are sorry for their sins, but they stay in their sorrow for their sins. They don't repent. And sorrow for sin is not 
what it's about. It is about actually doing something about that sorrow, cutting off the sin as Jesus teaches us, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. We are to be ruthless about the sin in our lives and not merely sorrowful because of it. As long as you allow sin to remain in your life and you simply try to manage it, you will lack joy. There's no joy in that because joy requires the inner preparation of repentance. That's why John the Baptist came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How are you doing this morning with your inner preparation for joy? There might be some house cleaning that needs to take place. That hidden closet, right, that again is off limits to God, that is hindering your joy. And it is necessary for you to clean house in order to experience the greatness of joy that God intends for you. Number two, joy requires an outer preparation, an outer preparation. Mark 1.3 says of the ministry of John the Baptist, it says, he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare, there's that word again, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Literally, build a gospel highway for others. A gospel highway for others. Live such a life that it is a bridge between others and God. You as an intercessor, you as one who builds that gospel highway, who builds bridges, who makes it, I want to say easier, but makes that way possible for lost people to come to know Jesus through the saving gospel contained in the scriptures. And so this is why that series that we're going to get back to in January on the fullness of life is so important. Living a full or abundant life is the best way that we do that. It is a living gospel advertisement that does what it says. Make the path straight. Build a gospel highway. Build a bridge between the gospel and others. Your life is that bridge. It should be that bridge. Unfortunately, for far too many of us, there's, there's a sign that says bridge out, right? We're an impediment to people coming to know Jesus through the gospel. And so there's this outer preparation that has to do with us living a full or abundant life, a gospel life that draws people to Jesus so that they say, who is this Jesus that you talk about? What, what is this life that you're living and how can I get in on that? Something attractive. It's a primary means of preparing others for the joy that comes from knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So, joy is found in Jesus. Joy requires preparation, and that is both inner and outer. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, thank you for Zachariah and Elizabeth. Thank you for your discipline. Thank you for your promises and their fulfillment. And God, whatever situation others find themselves in today, I'm sure that we all can find ourselves somewhere in this story, in one of those teachable moments, one of those principles hitting home in our hearts. Whatever that principle might be, God, would you drive it home and help us to be people who take action? For all of us, God, I have no doubt there is not a single person within the sound of my voice who doesn't need to do some kind of business with you in regard to repentance. Whether it's an attitude, 
a word, an action. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God, but thank you that your word is true. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What an awesome God you are, and we celebrate you this day. We worship you. Indeed, good news of great joy that is for all people, and I pray that it would be for every single person who is listening today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.